Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, where today we begin the first of three podcasts in a short sub-series we will simply call Great Stories. So far, each of our talks have centered around a central theme, whether it has been guard duty, peace treaties, drinking, and several historical sources have chimed in with insights to help understand and enrich that topic. But in the Great Stories series, we will focus on the first-hand account of only one individual for each episode, relate their contributions to the War of 1812, and share some of the more colorful tales that they have left to enrich us. Today, we begin with the life and times and trials of Charles Ball, a man born into the institution of slavery, escaping bondage and imprisonment, a keen observer of the British Navy in the Chesapeake, a wizened speaker on enslaved peoples. He would enlist in a special coastal branch of the U.S. Navy, fighting at Bladensburg and beyond. We found these stories absolutely fascinating. Please join us. The life narrative of Charles Ball was published in New York in 1837. The title page reads, if extremely informative, a not-so-catchy, Slavery in the United States, a narrative of the life and adventures of Charles Ball, a black man who lived 40 years in Maryland, South Carolina, and Georgia as a slave under various masters, and was one year in the Navy under Commodore Barney during the late war. And that is just the half of it. The subtitle goes on another 53 words. The text of this epic was ghostwritten by a Mr. Fisher, who's not really described in any length. It is an eye-opening saga we encourage anyone to research and read as the full details of his life will not be related here. Charles Ball was born in the early 1780s in Calvert County, Maryland. He married and sired several children. Enslaved, he was moved to South Carolina and later Georgia, where he rose to nearly run the estate of his sickly and bedridden master. Upon the death of this man, despising his mistress, he escapes and spends many arduous months on the run in the forest slowly making his way again northward. He is captured in Virginia and imprisoned. Heroically, he then breaks out of jail and crosses the Potomac River the same night, making his way again into Maryland, Calvert County, in the coastal east, to the home of his wife and children. This homecoming event is where we pick up his story, coinciding with the start of the War of 1812. With my heart thrilling with joy when I looked upon my wife and children who had not hoped ever to behold me again, yet fearful of the coming of daylight, which must expose me to be arrested as a fugitive slave, I passed the night between the happiness of the present 
and the dread of the future. In all the toils, dangers, and suffering of my long journey, my courage had never forsaken me. The hope of again seeing my wife and little ones had borne me triumphantly through perils that even now I reflect upon as some extravagant dream. And I passed the night with my children around me, oppressed by a melancholy foreboding of my future destiny. The idea that I was utterly unable to afford protection and safeguard to my own family and was myself even more helpless than they tormented my bosom with alternate throbs of affection and fear until the dawn broke in the east and summoned me to decide upon my future conduct. Mr. Sims at first advised me to conceal myself, but soon afterwards told me to go to work in the neighborhood for wages. I continued to hire myself about among the farmers until after the war broke out and until Commodore Barney came into the Patuxet with his flotilla when I enlisted on board one of his barges, as was employed sometimes in the capacity of a seaman and sometimes as cook of the barge. I had been on board only a few days when the British fleet entered the Patuxen and forced our flotilla high up the river. I was present when the flotilla was blown up and assisted in the performance of that operation upon the barge that I was in. The guns and the principal part of the armament of the flotilla were sunk in the river and lost. To give a little historical background on these operations and narrow down the time frame to a more exact date, we can say Calvert County, Maryland was a place with a very high percentage of free people of color, as anywhere else in the United States. It is therefore very conceivable that Seaman Ball could have found work and drawn little suspicion, except from those who already knew him. We know the British fleet moved into the Chesapeake in the spring of 1813, in March. In Baltimore, was a known nest of privateer activity and drew the attention of the Royal Navy to end their damaging practice. Joshua Barney, the Commodore mentioned, himself was an active privateer at this time. The presence of the Union Jack inspired Barney's construction of the Mosquito Fleet, or the Flying Squadron, a collection of 18 small and shallow draft vessels most of them barges armed with a single long gun for firepower and a single sail for propulsion along with oarsmen. The flying squadron did not put to sea until April 1814 and were plagued with problems from the get-go. Barney scuttled the fleet on August 19th and marched his sailors to Bladensburg for the land engagement. But Charles Ball had been active in the region prior to the late summer of 1814 and had many operations and dealings with the Royal Navy. And here is the time frame the two stories will relate originate from. The first deals with the British practice of offering freedom to enslaved people 
and positions in His Majesty's service, or the opportunity to seek freedom for themselves in the West Indies, a practice highly questioned by others in the Navy High Command. In the spring of the year 1813, a British fleet came into the bay, and from this time the origin of the troubles and distresses of the people of the western shore may be dated. It was in May when a British vessel of war came off the mouth of the river and sent her boats up to drive us away. They then marched up two miles into the country, burned the house of a planter, and brought away with them several cattle that were found in the fields. They also carried off more than 20 slaves, which were never again restored to their owner. And these were the first black people whom I had known to desert to the British, although the practice was afterwards so common. In the course of this summer and the summer of 1814, several thousand black people deserted from their masters and mistresses and escaped to the British fleet None of these people were ever regained by their owners, as the British naval officers treated them as free people and placed them on the footing of military deserters. In the fall of this year, a lady by the name of Wilson, who owned more than a hundred slaves, lost all of them in one night, except one man, who had a wife and several children on an adjoining estate. And as he could not take his family with him on account of the rigid guard that was kept over them, he refused to go himself. The slaves of Mrs. Wilson effected their escape in the following manner. Two or three of the men, having agreed amongst themselves that they would run away and go to the fleet, they stole a canoe one night and went off to the ship that lay nearest the shore. When on board, they informed the officer of the ship that the mistress owned more than a hundred other slaves whom they had left behind. They were then advised to return home and remain there until the next night, and then bring with them to the beach all the slaves of the plantation, the officer promising that he would send a detachment of boats to the shore and bring them off. This advice was followed and the fugitives returned before day to their cabins on the plantation of their mistress. On the next night, having communicated their plans to some of the fellow slaves, they arose about midnight, and partly by persuasion, partly by compulsion, carried off all the slaves on the plantation, with the exception of the man already mentioned. When they reached the beach, they kindled a fire as they had concerted with the British officers, and the boats of the fleet came off and removed this whole party on board. In the morning, when the overseer of Mrs. Wilson arose and went to call his hands to the field, he found only empty cabins in the quarter, with a single man remaining to tell what had become of his fellows. This was the greatest disaster that had befallen any individual in our neighborhood in the course of the war, and as the sufferer was a lady, much sympathy was excited in her favor. 
A large number of gentlemen met together for the purpose of endeavoring to devise some means of recovering the fugitive slaves. Their consultations ended in sending a deputation of gentlemen on board the fleet with a flag of truce to solicit the restoration of the deserters, either as a matter of favor or for such ransom as might be agreed upon. Strong hopes were entertained that the runaways might be induced voluntarily to return to the service of their mistress, as she had never treated them with great severity. To accomplish this, if possible, this latter end, I was spoken to, to go along with the flag of truce, in the assumed character of the servant of one of the gentlemen who bore it, but in the real character of the advocate of the mistress for the purpose of inducing her slaves to return to her service. We went on board the ship in the afternoon, and I observed that the gentlemen who went with me were received by the British officers with very little ceremony. The captain did not show himself on deck, nor were the gentlemen invited into his cabin. The whole of the runaways were on board this ship, lounging about on the main deck or leaning against the sides of the ship's bulwarks. I went amongst them and talked to them a long time on the subject of returning home, but found that their heads were full of notions of liberty and happiness in some of the West India islands. In the afternoon, all the gentlemen, except one, returned home in the boat that they had come off in. The gentleman who remained on board was a young man of pleasing manners and lively conversation, who appeared even before the other gentlemen who had come with the flag had left the ship, to have become quite a favorite with the young British officers. Permission was obtained of the British captain for this young gentleman to remain on board a few days for the purpose, as he alleged, of seeing the curiosities of the ship. He had permission to retain me with him as his servant, and I was instructed to exert myself to the utmost to prevail on the runaway slaves to return to their mistress. The ship lay at anchor off the shore of Calvert County until the second night after I came on board, when, from some cause which I was not able to understand, this ship and all the rest of the fleet got under way and stood down the bay to the neighborhood of Tangier Islands, where she again cast anchor, soon after sunrise the next morning in ten fathoms water. I was now at least seventy or eighty miles from home, in a ship of the public enemies of the country, and liable to be carried off to sea, and to be conveyed to some distant part of the world. To increase my alarm, about noon of this day, a sloop of war cast anchor under the stern of our ship, and all the black people that were with us were immediately removed on board the ship. I was invited, and even urged to go with the others, who, I was told were bound to the island of Trinidad in the West Indies, where they would have lands given to them, and were to go to be free. I returned many thanks for their kind offers, but respectfully declined them, telling those who made them that I was already a free man, 
and though I owned no land myself, yet I could have plenty of land of other people to cultivate. In the evening, the sloop weighed anchor and stood down the bay with more than 250 black people on board. I watched her as she sailed away from us until the darkness of the night shut her out from my sight. In the morning, she was not to be seen. What became of the miserable mass of black fugitives that this vessel took to sea, I never learned. My mission was now at an end, and I spoke this day to the young gentleman under whose care I was to endeavor to procure some means of conveying both him and me back again to Calvert. My protector seemed no less embarrassed than I was and informed me that the officers of the ship said they would not land us on the western shore within less than two weeks. I was obliged to content myself the best way I could in my confinement on shipboard, and I amused myself by talking to the sailors and giving them an account of the way in which I had passed my life on the tobacco and cotton plantations in return for which the seamen gave many long stories of their adventures at sea and of the battles they had been engaged in. I lived well whilst on board this ship, and they allowed me to share in the mess. In compensation for their civility, I gave them many useful instructions in the art of taking fish in the bay. It is interesting to hear the manner in which the very first enslaved people made their way from the fields of America into the promised freedom of British ships. Though a controversial practice, this policy did aid the Royal Navy in the formation of the Corps of Colonial Marines, a fighting force that did see action along the eastern seaboard and the southern coast. These troops and their descendants indeed went on to form a community in the West Indies, populating Trinidad. The anchorage that was the home of Charles Ball for a number of weeks off Tangier Island was the base of operations for the Royal Navy fleet. Rear Admiral Coburn had established armed redoubts and fortifications on the island to guard and cover the deep water anchorage there where his ships could safely lie and the Admiral began the construction of his own mosquito boat fleet there to counter the American equivalent and plunge into the river shallows of the Chesapeake. Our next story from Charles Ball will come within his stay aboard the 74-gun behemoth and also feature a daring escape into the night. This great ship lay at anchor like a vast castle, moored by the cable. But there were many small vessels used as tenders to the fleet that were continually sailing up and down the bay by night as well as by day in pursuit of anything that they might fall in with, that they could take from the Americans. Whilst I was on board, I saw more than 30 vessels, chiefly Baycraft, 
brought to our anchorage and there burned after being stripped of everything valuable that could be taken from them. The people who manned and navigated these vessels were made prisoners and dispersed amongst the several ships of the fleet until they could be removed to Halifax or the West Indies. One day, a small schooner was seen standing out of the mouth of the Nanticoke River and beating up the bay. Chase was immediately given by several of the light vessels belonging to the fleet and continued until nightfall, when I could no longer see the sails. But the next day, the British vessels returned, bringing in their company the little schooner, which was manned by her owner, who acted as captain and two boys. On board the schooner, besides her crew, were several passengers, seven in number, I believe. The people were taken out of this little vessel, which was laden with Indian corn, and after her cargo had been removed, she was burned in view of her owner, who seemed much affected at the sight, and said that it was all the property he owned in the world, and that his wife and children were now beggars. The passengers and crew of this little vessel were all retained as prisoners of war on board the 74, in which I was, and were shut up every night in a room on the lower gun deck. In this room, there were several portholes, which were suffered to remain open for the benefit of air. After these people had been on board three or four days, a boat's crew that had been out somewhere in the evening, when they returned to the ship, tied the boat with a long rope to one of the halyards of the ship and left the boat floating near the ship's bows. Sometime after night, the tide turned, moved the boat along the side of the ship and floated it directly under the portholes of the prisoner's room. The night was dark and warm, and I had taken a station on the upper deck and was leaning over the bulwarks when my attention was drawn towards the water by hearing something drop into the boat that lay alongside. Dark as it was, I could see the forms of men passing out of the portholes into the boat. In less than two minutes, nine persons had entered the boat, and then I heard a low whisper, which I could not understand, but immediately afterwards saw the boat drifting with the tide, which convinced me that she was loose and that the prisoners were in her. I said nothing, and in a short time the boat was out of sight. She had, however, not been gone long, when the watch on deck passed near me, and looking over the side of the ship, called to the officer on deck that the yawl was gone. The officer on deck instantly called to someone below to examine the room of the prisoners, and received for answers that the prisoners had fled. A gun was immediately fired under me on one of the lower decks. The ship's bells were tolled, numerous blue lights were made ready, 
and cast high into the air, which performing a curve in the atmosphere, illuminated the face of the water all the way from the ship to the place where they fell. The other ships in the fleet all answered by firing guns, casting out lights, and ringing their large bells. Three boats put off from our ship in search of the fugitives, which was little delay as possible, and after being absent more than an hour, returned without finding those who had escaped. This affair presented one of the finest night scenes that can well be imagined. The deep thunder of the heavy artillery as it broke upon the stillness of the night and re-echoed from the distant shores the solemn and mournful tones of the numerous bells as they answered each other from ship to ship as the sounds rose in the air and died away in the distance on the wide expanse of waters with the shouts of the seamen and the pale and ghastly appearance of the blue lights as they rose into the atmosphere and then descended and died away in the water, all combined together to affect both the eye and the ear in a manner the most impressive. One of the prisoners remained in the ship, not having courage to undertake with his companions the daring and dangerous exploit of escaping from the ship in her own boat. When the morning came, this man explained to the officers of the ship the whole plan that had been devised and pursued by his companions. When they found that the boat had floated under the portholes of their room, some of the number proposed to the rest to attempt the escape, as the oars of the boat had been left in her, but with difficulty suggested itself at the outset, which was this. The oars could not be worked on the boat without making a great noise, sufficient to alarm the watch on deck. To avoid this, one of the prisoners said he would undertake to pull off his coat and muffle one of the oars with it, and scull the boat until they could surely be free of the fleet, when they could lay both oars on the boat and row to shore. We lay much nearer to the western shore than we were to the eastern, but this man said the design of the prisoners was to pull to the eastern shore. All the boats that went from our ship pulled for the western shore, and by this means the prisoners escaped without being seen. The captain of the ship was much enraged at the escape of these prisoners and swore he would be avenged of the Yankees in short time. In this, he was as good as his word, for the very next day he fitted out an expedition consisting of eleven longboats and more than two hundred men who landed on the western shore and burned three houses with all their furniture and killed a great number of cattle. The officer who headed this expedition brought back with him a large silk handkerchief full of silver spoons and other articles of silver plate. I saw him exhibit these trophies as his valor amongst his brother officers on deck of the ship. As we've already established, Charles Ball would go on to enlist with Joshua Barney's fleet of barges. 
After that collection of boats was scuttled to prevent it falling into enemy hands, he and the other sailors would put up a limited defense of Washington at the Battle of Bladensburg and later defend Baltimore. We will close today with Mr. Ball's brief remarks on those engagements. And next week, we turn to a British doctor in Canada to hear his often humorous take on the America War. Huzzah! I did not enlist with Commodore Barney until the month of December, 1813. I marched with the troops of Barney from Benedict to Bladensburg and traveled nearly the whole of the distance through heavy forests of timber or numerous and dense cedar thickets. It is my opinion that if General Winder had marched the half of the troops that he had at Bladensburg down to the lower part of Prince George County and attacked the British in these woods and cedar thickets, not a man of them would ever have reached Bladensburg. I feel confident that in the country through which I marched, 100 Americans would have destroyed a thousand of the enemy by felling trees across the road and attacking them in ambush. When we reached Bladensburg and the flotilla men were drawn up in line to work at their cannon, armed with their cutlasses, I volunteered to assist in working the cannon that occupied the first place on the left of the Commodore. We had a full and perfect view of the British Army as it advanced along the road, leading to the bridge over the East Branch. And I could not but admire the handsome manner in which the British officers led on their fatigued and worn-out soldiers. I thought then, and think yet, that General Ross was one of the finest-looking men I ever saw on horseback. I stood at my gun until the Commodore was shot down when he ordered us to retreat, as I was told by the officer who commanded our gun. If the militia regiments that lay upon our right and left could have been brought to charge the British in close fight as they crossed the bridge, we should have killed or taken the whole of them in a short time. But the militia ran like sheep chased by dogs. I continued with the army after the sack of Washington and assisted in the defense of Baltimore. But in the fall of 1814, I procured my discharge from the army and went to work in Baltimore as a free black man.